Hi. Um, oh, you come with me. Okay. Um, we were both going to give our stories in the interest of time. I'm going to give you a 30-second story, and then I want Zaleda to give her story. It's a beautiful story of um, uh, restorative story. Um, uh, I have the kind of depression that's ongoing. I was, my mother put me in the crib when I was born and left me there, I think. And she, um, uh, it was called neglect, which is one of the most um, neglected um, uh, abuse uh, of, of children. It's more damaging because neglect, the parents can be good people and then no blood, there's no sexual abuse, they just don't connect with you, they don't bond with you. And we'll talk a little bit later about bonding. Zuleda has a story that's ongoing uh, neglect and, and actual event trauma, two kinds of abuse. And so when we talk about depression, we talk about uh, some unfinished business as usually as children um, and then we suffer as adults. And I think... Um, you will learn a lot from Zaleda's story. So she's going to take about 10 minutes to give her story, and I think you'll enjoy it. It's 4.05 right now, so I'm going to end at about 4.20. Okay. Okay. Um, we're trying to keep our eye on the time. Um, so I may look down at my watch as I'm telling the story because I want to make sure that I, I stay on target. Um, but um, I, I want to preface by saying that um, so many times in my life, as I experienced life as it was for me I said God why are you doing this why are why are these things happening to me and I want to tell you that the ministry that I have in counseling was the answer to that question that I asked um, for years when it felt like random painful things were happening and I didn't know why so I want to preface by saying that if you're going through painful things um, uh, God will bring a purpose to your pain um, if you let him do it so I want to preface by saying that but um, I had a pretty, I felt like, happy childhood until I was about nine years old. And at the, at the age of nine, it, um, after my parents moved us from Providence, Rhode Island to Orlando, Florida, for my dad to get a new job, is where I remember the trouble really started. And what I remember is that um, there was bickering and fighting going on in the home. Um, this became our new normal. Um, two specific incidents, actually, I have, as I'm saying that, I have more than one flash through my mind, but a couple specific incidences that I remember that will kind of paint a picture for you about just how um, bad it got for, for me was my parents arguing. And you know, when um, children are in the home where the parents are not providing a safe, secure place, that children become the caretakers. And so I followed suit. I had become the caretaker. I remember my parents arguing. I remember feeling like I needed to go help. I ran into the bathroom and found my father over the sink, pouring a bottle of poison over his head, calling out my mother's name. I remember another time um, I was very much into dance as a little girl. I loved to dance. I'd seen ballerinas, and my dream was to be a ballerina one day. And so I was excelling in dance. I was doing really well. Um, my mom took me, and this was at a time when my parents had then separated, took me into um, to dance class. I think we were in the middle of a jazz class. Janet Jackson was cool at the time. Rhythm Nation. Anyone? Okay, no. All right, well, I was doing my dance. I was in there. I was in my place where I felt safe and secure. 
and there was a partition between the dance um, area and the um, and the reception area. It was open, and I was sitting there. And to my shame and dismay, I heard my parents arguing over the music to all my peers, where all my peers were dancing, and my um, and my and my teacher was. Third thing I remember. Um, I remember, really this was probably one of the most violent memories that I have of my family of origin, being in the kitchen sometime after I remember my grandmother passing away. Again, another really big fight. I'm standing there watching my parents go back and forth. Um, this is really unreal, unreal. Um, there's a, there's a, you know, the, the, the knife stand on the counter. I remember escalating, escalating. I remember my sister being near me. I remember um, my father pulling a knife out of the, um, out of the, uh, the butcher, uh, the counter, and um, grabbing my sister and running to the neighbors next door out of fear for our lives. These are the things that um, brought me to a place that when finally we went through a divorce, three uh, or four different moves, restraining orders, um, you know, the whole, the whole thing can't, it's, it, was, it was bigger than I was um, at the time because I was, I was between the ages of 9 and 13. That by the time I got to 13 years old, I really was just a broken vessel. I didn't um, know why. I just knew that I was angry, that I was hurting, and that, um, and that I felt as though I was in a place where there was no repair. I know now that I suffered from depression. I wouldn't have had the name to call it that at the time. And so um, I began acting out, and the acting out that I did looked abusive. I remember um, fighting and arguing with my mother. I remember getting so angry that I punched my um, hand through the glass door in our home. I think I still have some scars to, um, to serve um, as my memory of that time. So my mother got to a place where she could no longer handle me and um, decided to give me up and over to a girls' reform school called the House of Hope. And at the House of Hope, I met other girls who were going through traumatic events whose stories were actually much worse than mine. And when I heard their stories, I thought, oh my goodness, how did I end up here? So I stayed there. I ended up with a house mother who loved me very well. She was a little Jamaican lady. She stuck by me. She gave me a routine. And within a week, I was actually feeling much better. Um, at the end of the first week that I was there, we had a girls' night where we all came together. My little Jamaican house mother, I wish I knew her name. But often, as with people who are depressed and in trauma, you don't remember details the way that you would like to. But she came in, I know that she came and she sat by me, and I remember the conversation that she began to have with me after we met for some worship time. And she said, Zuleida, do you know who Jesus Christ is? And I said, well, I know who God is. Um, for the record, I grew up in a home where my mother's father was a pastor and a a good one, so I had always had a sense of the presence of the Lord and felt that I knew God. And so I, I said to her, well, I know who God is. And she looked at me and very clearly said, Zuleida, you have to invite Jesus Christ to be the Lord of your life. 
And I said, okay, well, no problem. I can do that. Let's do it. So she led me through the sinner's prayer, and as she led me through the sinner's prayer, I began to weep. And I wept. And I wept. And I wept. And the tears kept coming. I cried. And as I cried, I felt as though um, a 40-year weight had been lifted. And that is my, that was the way I described it at the time, even when I was 13. I described it as 40 years of pain that was lifted from me. So I went to bed then I went to bed that night in the girls' home, woke up the next morning, and felt a joy that I had never known. Little did I know that at the same time my mom had decided that she couldn't leave me there. Um, she wanted her baby girl back home with her, and so she, um, so, she, so she was fighting with the administration to get me back. So I came home um, renewed, a new Christian, and thought that I had Jesus and that I had all the answers, and not, now everything was going to be okay for me, and I also had all the answers for everyone else, that if they just had Jesus, their life would be awesome too, and everything would go wonderfully for them. So I set about the task that most of us do after we become Christians, and I began reading my Bible, and I began um, the work of loving God and loving others and telling them about Jesus. And I did that as long as I could, not without some failures. I can't say that I was the perfect Christian from that point forward, because of my history, I did struggle with some sin up into my mid-20s. But I went to, um, and actually, and I want to say I always put that piece in my story because I always want to speak to the people who love the Lord but are still struggling with sin. I want to give you hope that, um, that, you know, that as long as you're wrestling, you're in a good place. So just continue to wrestle if that's, if that's also your story. But I, what I want to share with you today was that um, um, at some point, uh, I, I moved into... Um, a place where God began blessing me um, with all the prayers that I desired. He gave me a hope for a new family. My mom got remarried. I had step-siblings. I went off to college. Things were going really good. But when I returned, to col- when I per- returned home from college, um, what happened was I came home and was devastated to find that once again my home was in disrepair. It was fractured. My, fa- my stepfather and my mother were fighting again, or fighting, it was actually a repeat of what I had experienced before. My siblings, I could see, were obviously hurting. And being a Christian and being a woman who um, doesn't know how to keep my mouth shut, do any of you struggle with that? I kind of wear my heart on my sleeve and I can't keep it shut. So um, I went to my stepfather, who I saw as a spiritual leader of my home, and I said, you are teaching Bible study, and your marriage is in disrepair, and the girls are suffering, and I come home, and everyone's walking on eggshells. What is going on here? My heart was really broken. I was angry that we had gone back to where we had come from after we had, I felt we had come so far. And his response, and I have to tell you, I had had a good relationship with my stepfather up until that point, and I was very hopeful that he was the father um, that I didn't have. After my parents divorced, I didn't see my dad again from the age of 13 on. So my father, so my stepfather um, heard what I had to say, walked away, came back to me later to confront me because he was angry with the truth that I had spoken to him. And he came and he confronted me and he got me into a corner. And because of the abuse that I had experienced in the past, I reacted. And as I reacted to him, he reacted to me and the confrontation became physical. And he beat me until I was unconscious on the floor. 
And in that moment, my heart died. My spirit died. I had nothing left because I had believed that Jesus was the answer. And if he wasn't the answer in this, then what was, where was he and what was the answer? I remember looking up. I remember seeing him above me. I remember knowing the right thing to do, so I ran and I got, the office, I got officers involved. And I remember that as he was taken away in handcuffs to jail to be charged with assault, I felt as though my life was over. And in a sense, at that point it was, I spiraled into a depression, the second depression of my life, that I, I had been able to pull myself up out of the first one. I should say, Jesus pulled me up out of the first one. The second one, I already had Jesus, so I wasn't sure how I was going to get up out of that one. So he pulled me. Um, so I ended up in the pit of despair. Um, I experienced things that I never would have thought I experienced. I experienced post-traumatic disorder. Um, and now I know to call it that, but what it was was a series of panic attacks that when I was doing my internship for college, I'd have to run into the bathroom so that I could collapse in a sobbing heap because the, the grief that was coming up out of me, I could not contain. I remember um, talking to people and where I had always been a confident, um, articulate, verbal processor, all of a sudden I was stuttering. I had a loss of memory. I couldn't string two thoughts together. And I suffered with this and it didn't seem that anything that I did that I normally could have done to pull myself up out of it helped. I was felt permanently broken. So fast forward a few years, and I am covering up all of this grief and all of this hurt. And I um, find, and this is 15 years ago now, I walk into the office of Lottie Hillard looking for answers, and I tell her my story. As I tell her my story, I knew I had done the work. I had gone. I had read my Bible. I was very well versed in Christianity and Christian things. So I knew some things, like I knew that my family was dysfunctional. I knew that I had came from a fatherless home. Um, I knew that I had a father wound. I knew all of these things. I knew that I struggled with sin. I knew all of these things, and I sat in the room waiting for her to tell me what was wrong with me that I needed fixing. Um, what sin? What it was? What sin was it that I hadn't confessed? And when I told her my story, I won't go into the details of why this was true, but what she looked at me and she said, I hate your mother. Well, you have to understand at this point that my mother, my sister, and I, because my mom was a single mother, had, we were a team. And so when she came down and said that, it was really sacrilege to me. I thought the lightning was going to come down and strike the place when she said that to me. But what she gave me to do, what she, what she gave me in that moment was permission to be angry. And what she gave me in that moment was a truth that I hadn't been able to see for myself. And in that moment, what I describe it was, for me, was kind of a princess and a pea moment. You know the story of the princess and the pea? Where you have the stack, she had the stack of pillows under her, but there was the one pea that made her uncomfortable and really burned into her back because she couldn't sleep. And I felt in that moment as though she had named my pea and the pea had busted and I had, um, and now I was able to fight once again because she named the truth for me. So um, I wanted to share that story with you for many reasons that we're going to continue to talk about today. But that was my experience, experiencing depression in two different places, as a believer and also as an unbeliever. Um, I want to tell you that um, women are especially um, prone um, to depression, I think because we're relational beings 
who are influencers. We have a, cir- we have a circle of influence. Um, we are mothers, we're daughters, we're sisters, and we're wives. Um, I'm going to paraphrase this quote, but Larry Crabb says that as women, we are fulfilling the purpose of our design to pursue relationship at all cost. And so because that's the purpose of our design, that is where we experience brokenness in our relationships. Um, I had a couple of case studies that we don't have time to go through right now um, in depth, but I'm going to go ahead and name them if that's okay. Sheila Walsh from the 700 Club. Um, was a woman who did everything correctly, and when the re- and she experienced depression, um, when the news reporter asked her on TV, um, "How you know? Um, how are you?" All he all all the somebody asked her on live television, "How are you?" She broke down um, in in a in a in a pool of depression and ended up having to go um, and check herself into a hospital where she met with God and and. Um, and hadn't had to deal with her pain. Um, Kay Warren, uh, um, her son committed suicide, and what she quotes is Psalm 88:18, um, "Darkness is my closest friend." I think the three things that my story, Sheila Walsh's story, and Kay Warren's story all have in common are three things: they're good. We are good girls who performed well. Um, we, we didn't want to have to deal or face, with, or face our pain, and we found ourselves in, a, in the pit. Um, Lottie loves this quote. I'm, I'm, I probably should leave it to her, but what we do to run away from pain um, is called mental illness. We hate um, pain. We don't, we don't like to be in pain. Um, I want to share with you some statistics on depression that have to do with women. These are, um, this is really interesting. Women are two times as likely as men to be diagnosed with depression. 15% of women take an antidepressant during their lifetime. It's actually called the most significant mental health risk for women, especially of childbearing or childrearing age. And 70% of prescriptions are given to women. Finally, If you didn't know, depression is the leading cause of disability among women. I'm going to leave it over to you. There are lots of reasons why women are depressed, and you probably can name them as well as I can. But, you know, a woman whose husband doesn't love her, then she feels like her life's on hold and she's um, hopeless of ever having love or ever having a secure marriage or um, a, a sense of well-being. Um, if, you, if you're not connected in those first three years with mom, then you usually have a low-grade depression your whole life. Um, and if not named, then it, it controls you. Uh, loss of self. Do you know there are so many women who um, are good role players and good performers and good people pleasers. Um, they don't believe they're, they're lovely. Anyone would love them if they were the real them. Um, and so they seek affirmation by being a good girl. But maintaining a false self is a big burden and can be depressing. And, and, and you don't really ever feel loved because you know you're presenting and you're manipulating with your good behavior. So you give everybody what they want and then feel used up later. People who live for another's expectations are likely candidates for depression. Parents who will be there when and only the child succeeds or who look good, they're human 
see them as human doings, not human beings, um, are going to have depressed children. If that was your case with your parents, if you were there somehow, like she said, if mom and dad aren't getting along, the parents usually turn to the kids, or the kids take on the job of, of keeping the family together. If you notice that rebels in the family don't get depressed, you know, they're, they're not holding in. They're not being on good behavior. They get it all out. Um, uh, a woman who doesn't have a self confuses self with selfishness. You know, the church for years has lifted up a woman who's, who doesn't have a self and who's, who, you know, um, her version of submission is to um, not exist. And they, they've lifted up the woman as the epitome of the, the beautiful godly woman. When truthfully, we've confused having a self with being selfish. The world says um, to have a self, you have to be selfish. And we think having a self is selfish. But there's a difference in selfishness and having a self, right? So at some point, you have to have a voice. You have to, um, being a submissive wife in the godly sense of the word doesn't mean um, crawling under the bus and living there. Um, And I think... um, there's something in us that refuses to suffer. And like she said, Scott Peck said, mental illness is what you do to run away from pain. Um, if you will not suffer uh, and look at the truth and look at the blind spots and look at those things that affect you, then you'll suffer later. The other cause of depression is, is secret, unconfessed sin. You know, um, Psalm 32 says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. James 5, 13 through 16, confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. There's something really important about keeping, keeping your uh, sins confessed up. Um, and don't confuse despair uh, over, uh, with, with depression. We should be in despair that anyone will ever be able to fill us up and that, that our way works until we're hopeless um, that anyone will be enough for us and until we're helpless that our way doesn't work, only God's way, then um, there, we're going to have problems. But despair is not the same thing as depression. In fact, despair is the route to joy. Despair that your way works. Despair that... Because um, that, as soon as you... The sooner you come to the place where you don't put all your hopes in a person to, to give you validation, the sooner you come to the place where you realize that your way doesn't work but God's way does, that's, that's when the depression will end. Um, if that's where your, your, uh, yours is coming from. Lack of community is another source of depression. Person A can go through something horrific. Person B go through the same thing. Person A has community. Person B is alone. It's a whole ball, different ball game. I, if there was anything I would, I, would, I would shout more and do more of, if I had to do my life over, it would be to, to, to have more community. And I think there's a sense in which we isolate and all the demons come out when we isolate. So it's, it kills us because we wouldn't, you know, we kind of like to keep our sins secret, our trouble secret, and not bother people. But what we do is leave room for other demons to enter in. You need community. Um, he's, God said it wasn't good for man to be alone. And he made us for himself, but he also made us for communities. It's the, how he established that we were made. And the other thing that causes depression, I think, is not getting grace not understanding what the grace of God really is. There's a test in your handout. Um, uh, did you all get that? Did we pass those out? I wasn't in the back. Did we pass anything out? Where is it? Where's all the handouts? Everything is everything gone? Oh, it's in the back? 
Well, um, let me just say this. Yeah, go get it, and then I'll, do, I'll come back to it. It's, it's one of the most important things I could say to you is that if depression is usually that we want something outside of ourselves for us to feel complete, and, and we feel at the mercy of our environment or the mercy of people, and, and when we're free to, to forgive people ahead of time for failing us, when we're feeling free to know who we are regardless of whether people love us or not, then we're free to love and we're free to forgive. And that has far-reaching tentacles into your children. That if you understand grace and you're comfortable with being a sinner, I don't mean that you take sin lightly. I mean comfortable that he's big enough to, to love you and to move through you even though you are imperfect. And maturity is increased awareness of your imperfection and increased dependency on him. It, and that's good news because that means that um, anything's possible. You can be a mess and God can do anything. But you have to call it that. And, and getting comfortable with his grace and, our, and, and that we need him and that we are dependent creatures and that he is uh, he's strong enough to, to take us where we are and do amazing things. What it will do is it will make it easier for you to look at your sin because you won't see it at the end of the world. And the, the grace test, is, is there a, is that back there? Can, just one? Okay, we'll pass out what you have then. Let me do it real quick with you. How much time do we have? It's 430. It's 430. Our time is up. We're through at 5. I don't have it with me. You want to get on and get the copy of the grace test? Oh, is that them? That's okay. Just pass them out. I'm going to do this real quick, and then um, Zuleta is going to give you um, some more about secure attachment. The reason we're hitting it so hard, we're seeing more and more perfectly wonderful families where kids aren't getting uh, secure bonding. And if, if you get that secure bonding, then you're set for life. If you don't, then no matter how good a parent you are, you can't make up for it. Let's see, let's see if you pass the grace test. By the way, if you pass this test, it means you flunked grace. It means that you don't really get it. So don't answer the questions with what you know in your head, because in your head, you're pretty smart. But what you function from in your gut, okay? You ready? You can keep it to yourself, but write yes or no on the left. When I sin, I feel like God loves me less. If that's true, mostly true, then put yes. Number two, I feel a pressure to perform, always trying harder, hiding, pretending, trying to be perfect, external obedience with internal anxiety. If that's mostly true, say yes. I am plagued by real and false guilt. I cannot recuperate easily when I fall, especially when it's the same sin. Number four, I am hoping if I try hard enough, my good behavior will cancel out my bad behavior. Five, when my sin's exposed, I go to self-contempt, hating myself, or hating or blaming others instead of repentance, which is grieving over the sin. I don't say to myself, or I say to myself, I am worthless instead of I have sinned, but I'm still precious to him. Number six, I cannot handle criticism, the ugly truths about myself. 
Number seven, I'm judgmental. Little or no mercy for myself or others' deficiencies. Number eight, I insist on being in control. Being helpless and having to depend on his goodness as well as power feels more humiliating than restful. Number nine, I feel anxiety about being found out. Ten, I feel like a hypocrite when I do ministry if I have sins I haven't overcome. Eleven, I fear God will give up on me if I keep messing up. Twelve, I rarely admit when I'm angry with God. Thirteen, I strange you because I work so hard to be good. I have a certain entitlement that God owes me to come through for me. Fourteen, I'm usually defensive when someone confronts me about a sin. Fifteen, I'm exhausted from performing. Now, if you answered most of those yes, then you, you don't get grace. Um, and you need to get it. You know, there's something really, really relaxing being at the foot of the cross, a mess, and just saying, Lord, come get me. Jehoshaphat said, those giants are too big for me. I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. And God said, the battle's mine. Let me, let me take care of it. And it's a, it's a wonderful thing to realize that the difference in God and me is that I'm not God and that he's big enough to handle even the, my worst sin. So, insecure attachment. Do they have that handout? So, some of you have come to the stage. I'm going to go ahead and acknowledge right now that some of you have come to each of our talks, and we've shown this at every talk. And as Lottie said, we're driving this point home to you. Um, But we're going to play this now for the people who haven't had a chance to see it, who haven't been to the other talks, but but need to hear this. So for those of you who have already heard this piece, just um, absorb it. I mean, really, every time I, I mean, even I, I deal with this every day, but, but um, in the counseling room, and it's something, um, you know, that I hear in trainings over and over again, but it never ceases to amaze me just how foundational this piece is and just what it means and what the implications are for um, how we do relationship and, um, and what we get out of life um, from, you know, for our, for over the course of our entire lives, that what happens in the first um, six months um, really impacts um, the rest of our lives um, and that these principles that we're talking about, secure attachment, um, don't just apply for the first six months, but they apply over the course of our entire lives. In other words, we can develop, we can kind of shift from secure attachment to insecure attachment depending on the course of our life and what happens over the course of our life. So we set the stage for it in the first six months of life, but, um, but really um, this principle about secure or insecure attachment is true for us at any stage of life. So what I'd like to do now is I'd like to show, for those of you who haven't seen it, um, I'd like to show uh, the still face video. So I, I'm not, because of a, in the best interest of time, I'm not going to go through and break these all down, but what I will do is give you a, a synopsis and basically say that a child with a secure attachment, a person with a secure attachment goes through life and is able to bounce back from um, the, the hardship of life. Um, but if you have had um, starting from birth through the first three years or beyond, um, trauma, either we talked about this in the last session, either, either ongoing or event trauma, and, and it, could be, it could have started with your um, attachment to your mother or it could have been something else in life that uh, developed in you an insecure attachment, um, that you would be prone to 
um, you could be prone to be depressed and or angry or completely passive or non-responsive as the disorganized last one on the on the list here if you all have this um, on the disorganized attachment um, chart um, could show but I really believe that this is evidence that we are um, as especially as women that we're relational beings and that our relationships are so important and are so very vital um, to our well-being, our sense of being, our sense of who we are. And, um, and so what we're finding in, um, in, in the counseling room, in clinical therapy, is that, um, is that therapeutic forms that focus on um, attachment, on, um, on going back and looking at your history and figuring out where it went wrong with you know, where it went wrong with attachment are really the most effective forms of, of therapy, and that's what we do in the counseling room. Do you have anything else you want to say? Um, I want to say. I don't know what are you doing down there, Lottie. What? <laughs> so what are you doing down there, Lottie? I was enjoying your talking. Oh, okay. She was. She turned into the audience. Well, I guess then just what I'll go on. I'll go on to say. I'll just I'll take it home because we're we. They're asking us to keep this to 40 minutes, and then we'll go into question and answer time. Is that the hardest thing to do when you're um, when you're experiencing depression? Is uh, and I'll say this not only from my own experience, but from the experience of sitting with others in the counseling room who are experiencing um, depression and anxiety. One of the hardest things to do is to sit with it, is to be in it. But I really believe um, that depression um, is really, uh, on, on, in so many cases, about unfinished business. It's about unresolved grief that, um, that you haven't had a chance to process. And we really don't, in our culture or society, make room for grief. We want to stick to what's happy. We're kind of in a go-go-go culture that you know, we want to move from one thing to the next. I always found it interesting that um, in other cultures and other societies, and even in biblical times, um, they purpose to make room for grief. So, um, for example, one of the cultural things um, that I um, came upon was um, that they would have a, a designated time of mourning for um, family members who lost someone, where the family members would wear a different color, not for a week, I mean, that's probably about the time we expect people to go back to work here and do all those things, but for as long as it took. So, somebody, so a family could be in mourning for, um, for months, for years, over, over a loss, and that the community would come around them and so would surround them and would, and would love on them and support them through their grief. And I really believe that's an art. It's something um, that, these, you know, that these cultures have practiced. And it makes room for grief, which is something that we don't do here. And when you experience depression, you really are experiencing, on some level, a loss. There's a loss of something that you're experiencing. So there's a grieving that you need to do. And in that grieving, I think um, I would have to say um, that part of the healing process is being able to sit with your pain 
and also to be surrounded by community who would be willing to sit in your pain. I want to read this quote to you by Larry Crabb. When hints of sadness creep into our soul, we must not flee into happy or distracting thoughts. Pondering the sadness until it becomes overwhelming can lead us to deep change in the direction of our being from self-preservation and grateful worship. So I want to say that um, I realize that there are times also, practically speaking, you have to get up, you have to go to work, you have people, you have relationships that you have to attend to. But those things will always be there. I like to tell people in the counseling room, you do that when you're outside of the counseling room, so why don't we focus on what you don't focus on in here? Um, so recognize that you will find time to make room to do all of the other things as you always have. You probably will find time to tend to the people in your life as women. You will probably find time to, um, you know, to check off the list of to-dos. You'll find time to fit in the job. But it will be harder for us as women to sit in our pain. So we have to make sure that we make room for ourselves to do some self-care if we're experiencing depression and really sit with it and figure out what that's about. And in the last session, I talked about having a blind spot. So I think sitting in it and figuring out what it's about really requires us knowing that we will automatically have a blind spot, that we need, um, that we need others to speak into our lives. We need, other, we need a community surrounding us who will be able to um, be with us and help us through it. So um, if you're experiencing depression, make sure that you have, you have those things in your life. Questions? We covered the whole thing, I guess. Either we either put or we either we ever to, either totally covered it or we totally didn't. It was one or the other. It was hit or miss. Hi. She, yeah, she couldn't hear you, so I'm going to relay the question again. It's okay. Did y'all hear it? To the best of my ability, and if I didn't hear you correctly, correct me. But she asked, what about non, you talked, she said, what she said was that um, we put an emphasis on sin, but what about things um, that you're experiencing depression over that are not sin issues? You're not sure what, where it's coming from, but it's, it's kind of a non-sin issue. With that, like, like cooking or public speaking or, or anything like that. So, um, I think what you're talking about is anxiety, really. You're talking about depression, more than depression, maybe things that you would experience some anxiety over. Yeah, I was just, can you hear me now? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, we take things to him all the time that we can't or we feel inadequate or um, that's not sin. It's just that we're dependent. So, you know, um, you don't you take, go to the cross for strength or you go to the cross for forgiveness, you go to the cross for healing, go to the cross for everything. So is that what you mean? Like the, the, the Second Chronicles 20 that I was quoting, Jehoshaphat had a job to do and he was petrified. He said, I can't do it. He said, help. He said, okay, I'm here. I, I'll do it. You just show up. So that's not sin. He just needed help. So. What do you do for someone who is in a state of 
how do, how, do the, how do you help a friend who's depressed? Is that the idea? Who, who doesn't have church community around them. Um, do, are they believers? Maybe not. Do you know, the best thing you can do for somebody who's depressed, uh, if they're open, say, listen, I know somebody could help. I'm worried about you. Get some counseling or go see my elder or uh, my pastor or someone that you know could help them. And then if they don't want that, then you just stay a friend and just stick close by because eventually they're going to go down and they'll, be, they'll need you. So just wait. Woe to him that follows that hath not another to pick him up. So you just be that person who's waiting in the wings. Offer them something and then don't push. Just let them where they are and just wait. Because it's like a toothache. If you don't go to the dentist, all it does is get more rotten. You know, you just wait till it wears them out. If you want to check the handouts for some you didn't get, feel free on the back row. All the handouts for the day are in the back right row after this is over if you want to get Any, any other questions? The and the Larry Crab books. Do what? The Larry Crab book, you can put it in. Is there one in the question that has, has been helpful specifically? Or? For his books? Um, well, Dan's Leaving with the Limp is good. I think Larry Crabb's Inside Out is good. The, the book he wrote a long time ago. The first part, he teach, talks about facing your, your sorrows and your, your, your wounds. And the second part is about don't be demanding. <laughs> if you killed your, your hunger and then you get it back, then all of a sudden you want everybody to meet your needs. Another good book is Sacred Romance. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, a classic that, that I'm afraid is getting overlooked. Uh, Dan Allender, who was mentored by Larry Crabb, he also mentored Brent Curtis, who died on a rock climbing expedition, but he wrote Sacred Romance with John Eldridge, the first book they wrote. He was discipling John Eldridge, and he died when they were doing a men's retreat. That book is so cool because it talks about the, the arrows that hit you and what you do with them. Um, you know, you've got to deal with that stuff, that stuff that's still stuck in you that's, that's causing abscess. Okay, I'm going to read you a Franciscan prayer, and then we'll close. And keep your eyes open. We're praying with our eyes open today. May God bless you with discomfort at easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships so that you may live deep within your heart. May God bless you with anger at injustice, oppression, and exploitation of people, including exploitation of you, so that you can work for justice, freedom, and peace. May God bless you with tears to shed for those who suffer from pain, rejection, and starvation, including your own. May God bless you so that you start so that you may reach out your hand to comfort them and to turn their pain into joy and may God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in this world so that you can do what others claim cannot be done God bless you thanks for letting us come